of this morning's talk is East Meets West. Some two and a half thousand years ago, a certain teaching got underway, which was a contribution towards human beings discovering within themselves clarity, love, truth. And one of the encouragements which was strongly given at that particular time was to w towards looking at the totality of one's lifestyle, of one's relationship to life, and to somehow find and explore ways and means towards these discoveries. And within the social structure of that of the society, of Indian society at the time of Gautama Siddhartha. It was a strictly enclosed family unit, little access to, to movement and to forms of personal freedom which we take for granted. And in a very structured way, roles were hard and fast. And they came about, already that process was already underway, according to what we see and what we read, but there came about a movement, a radical movement, in which not only men, but men and women were provided with the opportunity to make major alterations in their life in order to facilitate the opportunity to live with understanding. And at the time, particularly this, the, uh, what is called in the technical language, the calling forth, the calling forth of women from the roles which they were uh, tied, tied to, caused a great uproar at that particular period. And out of that was formed what is called, at that time, the Sangha. And in what we call, in uh, the language of today, we might refer to as, as the, the company, the, the solidarity of like-minded people. This movement, as you know, went from one insignificant little corner of the subcontinent of India and began to make its way over the centuries to different parts of Asia, reaching as far as Afghanistan in the west, right through to the north of Japan and the far northern reaches of China, right to the uh, southern tips of Sri Lanka. And it became a movement which adapted and changed to the particular 
cultural setting of, of the time. And in looking in that rather simple and histor historical way, of course, there came about the establishing of certain kinds of guidelines for men and women wishing to lead an alternative life. Those rules or precepts, or what is now what is referred to, what is called in the tradition the Vinaya, those rules and precepts were unknown in the first 20 years of the teachings of Gautama Siddhartha. In other words, the men and the women of that, at, that, at that time engaged in their practices, used every opportunity for that, and gradually, it is said, that as the years went by, there came to be some kind of formulation of guidelines. And these, gradually, these guidelines, one might say, over the years, it is indicated, became hardened they became hard and fast. And when something becomes hard and fast, as is usual, and as we experience too, there all too easily comes about a certain inflexibility. And this is common in the East. And those who, of us who have had the privilege of spending some time in the East, and some of us spending several years, there have been exposed to the great strength, as I say, of the teaching, of this message of uh, peace in, in the world, have been exposed to that, and equally and correspondingly have been exposed to the other questionable elements. And when something becomes hard and fast, too, of course, there also comes about a hardening and a fastening of the roles and the relationships. And this is particularly apparent in many Buddhist countries today where there is a rather common view that you have to be a monk to practice, to really develop and go somewhere. That the best that you can do if you are a woman or if you are a lay person, or if you're a family person, is perhaps to just take five precepts to make merit, to engage in chanting, and to earn enough to engage in a sufficient number of meritorious deeds to, so that one somehow or other will be reborn into a Buddhist country and become a monk. And this is a very, very, very common view. That view is not, certainly not pervasive throughout the, throughout, uh, the society, but is a common view. This particular uh, view which hel is held, of course, enters into some dispute with those people, men and women, who seriously engage in practice. But, once one begins to make some challenge about the state of the religion, contemporary religion, as is always, the individual finds himself or herself at odds 
with the mainstream of thinking. And this has been true not only true of all the religions. And though there isn't a history to its credit in Buddhism of direct persecution as such for one's belief, but still nevertheless there are still cases and examples where there has come about the alienation of the individual because that individual has sought to question. An example of this, in a recent example, there's two I can think of. One teacher, who uh, John and I spent um, some time with in the forest some years ago, Ajahn Buddhadasa, didn't advocate any radical change in the Vinaya to bring it up to date, but in questioning the kind, the, the general um, theory an application of Buddhism, Buddhism in the country became a suspect. He wasn't persecuted, but he was accused of being a communist. <coughs> One of his leading students, another teacher, Ajahn Gowit, who is a personal friend who I've known for more than 12 years, have corresponded with regularly, attempted, went to an island and attempted to formulate a new kind of uh, community for monks, for nuns, for lay people, in which there was more active participation, a contribution towards supporting themselves through, the, uh, through gardening, encouragement to engage in such un-Buddhistic things as Tai Chi and generally an encouragement to, to people to see lay people to see that they too don't have to regard themselves as being lesser or inferior in, in any way and his talks would, would, would emphasize that he also was accused of because of his critical outlook and questioning outlook was accused of being a communist. But because he didn't have the general standing, he was a young, young monk, young in Buddhism means 40, because, <laughs> because he was considered to be a young monk and didn't have acceptance wide through, throughout the country, his life became very difficult. I, if I may say, received uh, let, let, letters from him because he was threatened with regard to helping him to get out of the country. I had to write to him under a different name because he didn't want people to know where he was. And all, all this went on until we were able to get him out of the country, went to Singapore, then arrangements were, were, were made through, to get him to, into Australia and he's now staying on um, Bodhi Farm which is uh, um, where many, many of my close friends live. And this is and one, more, one more example that here there, there is a particular model. This model is adhered to very strongly. The model is, question, the model is questioned and in the questioning uh, of it all the fears and the suspicions and the rejection take place. As Ajahn Gowit can, can very, very well testify and though that may be or may not be 
of some concern to us, but what it seems to me, and for some of us who have a, on the one side, an enormous sense, and perhaps one can't overemphasize this, at least for, my, for myself, who spent those years there, an enormous sense of appreciation and love and respect and, and gratitude for all that one receives through the, uh, those years there, to, as it were, to strike some kind of balance, and for others here too, it is the, part of the same questioning, to strike some kind of balance in terms of this appreciation and, and gratitude for what one has received actually in the East, as distinct from receiving it in the, in the West, this is more than a, this is a decade ago now, between that balance and, as it were, a discriminating observation in which one sees what is appropriate for us in our Western world, in our particular social setting. And this question arises to greater and lesser degrees for anyone really who, is, is, who, who has some interest in this transmission of the East, of the whole world of practice to the West. Let us put it in another context. You may know the, 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 of the historian, English historian who died some years ago, Arnold Toynbee, who in England I, certainly one of the most one of the best-loved historians who, who wrote about something like the rise and fall of something like 20 civilizations. He had an extraordinary mind and someone, if I may say, whose son, Philip, who died last year of uh, cancer, a, a friend of uh, Christina and I. And Arnold Toynbee said, when it comes to the this was 20, 30 years ago. When it comes to the end of this century, people will cast their minds eye back and say, what were the great events of the 20th century? And someone will say, well, it has to be the, uh, the wars, the First World War. That would be the most, not great, but let us say the most memorable event, the, the outstanding event and all that was meant. And another will say, well, the Second World War, both world wars. And another will say, the rise of communism, or the rise of fascism. And another will say, the splitting of the atom. And another will say, the, the uh, outburst of uh, nuclear energy, nuclear power, and nuclear arms, or whatever. And another will say something else. And he said, I don't agree. He said, I, my, as a historian, I would say that the major event of the 20th century will be the bringing of Buddhism to the West. So this transmission, going from the East to the West, for some, has a particular significance in light of the social 
relevance, it's social conditions in this society in which, in which we are living in. And so, when one gives considera consideration to it, it's rather necessary, it seems to me, to, to look at and question and to be able to discern what's actually useful and valuable and what isn't. What is worthwhile for those of you, and several of you have been to the, to the East, or several of you, and many of you have had exposure to some of the major traditions, this is Buddhist traditions, it may be Theravada tradition, it may be uh, Zen, or, uh, or the different Mahayana traditions. And when, and when having had some exposure to that, here or there, there this discernment of what actually one senses is really useful and valuable. To what degree is it useful and valuable to bring and maintain the cultural aspects? And one begins to look and examine this. To what point, what, to what use is it to bring and to uh, carry and express many of the concepts which are used in the, in the Eastern world or used, used within the particular traditions? And some of us the felt and feel that. All of that, plus the relationship of monks to lay people and vice versa, all of that needs some kind of examination. Let us take some examples. Let us take the, let us take the question of language as a, a major one. When we were in the, in the East, and we're all with or having contact and communication with orthodox teachers, more orthodox teachers and teachings here in the West. There's a whole framework of concepts which, which get used. Concepts can be such things as um, um, nirvana and emptiness, arahant and, uh, and bodhisattva, karma, Sankara and uh, all those kind of concepts can be greatly emphasized. And there's a whole there's a whole range of them which one hears again and again and again. And, and from enlightenment to this to that. And when one hears these concepts, because they're completely foreign to one, because they are foreign anyway, because they're a foreign language, most of them. <laughs> then one, one might as well say boom, 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 because <laughs> and it's like most things in life, if one says it loud enough and, and, and often enough, one thinks there must be something really important about boom, 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 boom. <laughs> and, and all too, all too easily in this uh, transmission which has taken place, just on the conceptual, conceptual level, it leads to so many divisions. It leads to something which we are not born with, it leads to sectarian mindedness. And so, it is not that one must uh, in any way reject the concept, but at least have some clear and working definition about them in some, in some way or, or other, if one is to employ them, or, and, be free, where necessary, to be able to drop them. To be able to say, well, that framework of concepts is useful and appropriate in a particular culture, 
and society of, that, of the time, and perhaps they're not really relevant to, to hear. And once one begins just to examine at the, le at the, con at the conceptual level, to, to look and, and speak the language which we, which we know, already one has taken, a rad relative to a conservative thinking, a radical stand. And that can express itself in many ways. Many, many of you have said and repeated this phrase, Budang Sarananga Chami, Damang Sarananga Chami, Sangang Sarananga Chami. Every Buddhist says that. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. Who knows what it means? What does it mean? I take refuge in the Buddha. And so sometimes that person may use and express such a such terms, it may have some meaning and relevance, it may feel very appropriate, but it can be just the, the repetition of a, of a phrase which may have no meaning for oneself. And it sounds like a conversion. It sounds like one is being expected to adhere to something which one doesn't really understand, but it's easier to adhere because it's harder to question. And that's that, that, that is all too common. So it's not, in, I would say, in a kind of a sensitive attitude, it's not that one is trying to reject the old framework of the ease, but rather, rather the individual for herself or for himself seeing what really feels appropriate, what, what, see, what, what seems valid in one's time. One of the areas, particular areas, which causes difficulty and, and therefore the need for questioning, is the area which comes up ag again, 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 and once more again, and that is this whole area of the Vinaya, and some of the rules and the precepts within the Vinaya, which seem outmoded, which simply, simply seem to be out of touch with contemporary society, with progressive outlook, with, with the kind of changes which are an important ones which are taking place within our whole social, social structure. And John and I this morning, I may say, we were discussing this, talking a, uh, a little bit, and I think most of you know that uh, we were monks for some period of time, John, eight, eight years or, or more, and myself uh, uh, for, for, six, for six years, and so we're not actually speaking as uh, um, outsiders so much, but, but as uh, myself, that is, speaking now as a person like John who has a certain intimate um, knowledge of, of the life, the monk's life, or what, of what is the, called the bhikkhu life. And we just wrote down just some of the kind of, what helps to make it clear, some of the kind of precepts, 
out of the 227 of them which cause difficulty. When I read them, you'll know why. <laughs> and as John says, at the, at, the at the beginning, many of the rules have been outdated because they involve the relationship of the conduct between the monks and the nuns, and that is the bhikkhunis. And in the Theravada tradition, there are no uh, bhikkhunis, that is, women who ordain and take this massive number of precepts. So there are women who wear white or orange. So some of the, many of the rules, or a number of the rules, are not even relevant anymore because the rules that they related to, the, the women are no longer around. But should any bhikkhu teach more than five or six sentences of the Dharma to a woman without a male present who knows the sense of what is being said, this entails expiation. Expiation is an offence. Should any bhikkhu, by appointment, set out to travel on the same journey with a woman, even to go through one village, it entails expiation. Should a bhikkhu sleep, this is an interesting point here, should a bhikkhu sleep, then the author has put under the same roof. Along with a woman, this entails expiation. Should any bhikkhu, here's another um, point, should any bhikkhu lusted with perverted thoughts engage with a woman in bodily contact or holding of hands or holding of tresses or hair or touching some bodily member This entails initial and subsequent meeting of the Sangha. <laughs> and we look through, I, and one might say that perhaps looking at it again sensitively, the initial guideline is, basically the message is, if one's mind is, uh, full of lust, let us say, and indulging in that, it is better not to physically have contact with a woman. Now that is not, to me, that is, that, may, that, that simple guideline may be an expression of some, 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 wis some wisdom there. And similarly vice, vice versa, one full of, full, full of that and energy and anger or whatever, all that kind of thing going on inside the mind, one may feel it is quite inappropriate to have, have, have contact. And that seems to me a, a, a sane guideline. And when we look through the Vinaya uh, today, we couldn't see anything about not touching a woman at all. I couldn't see it. But that has come to be the interpretation. It is one thing not to touch somebody else because one feels that it would be inappropriate at that time because of the state of one's mind. And I think we all experience that at, at particular, particular times. But the rule gets interpreted to, the ex to an extreme. Similarly with this rule which, has come under, which comes under question here at the centre by the women and, and rightly so, here the guideline 
is, says, should a bhikkhu sleep along with a woman? And here, that kind of guideline, again, looking at it as sensitively as possible to the position of the man who has voluntarily decided to lead a celibate life, one might say that the guideline, it is better not to sleep side by side with a woman b because of the previous guidelines which one has set oneself, that one has decided to lead a celibate life for whatever reason. The extreme interpretation of that, and, and besides that guideline we practice here by the way, everybody who comes to the center is practicing it. That guideline in its extreme has now come to be under the same roof. Now if we interpret that guideline here, all of us, we've got problems. <laughs> <laughs> it says here, a, a bhikkhu cannot even sit on a bed or a chair which is upholstered with kapok. <laughs> now here in the old, old, so these, these are out. <laughs> these are the cushions. Now in the old way, of course, Again, it, it could be quite appropriate. It could be quite appro appropriate insofar as that it, it may learn to express a certain humility. And when people were living in a society in which they all sat on the mats, the message to the Sangha of the time was, don't come in with your Zafu or whatever, don't come in with a plush seat and have some special seat and make yourself different from those who are on the mat. I mean, that, that's the, that is, seems to be the, the, the message in, 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 in the guideline. But in its, in its extreme, this is unacceptable, sitting on, on, on a seat with a zafu. And long since, the, the reasoning and the wisdom behind it has long since been lost. And that is when the adherence to rules and that the legalism of it, the conformity to it, doesn't stand up to reason. And when it doesn't stand up to reason, it often ends up being offensive. And in this case, offensive to women. What does one do with that? What do you do if you're a woman, or if you're a man who's caring and sensitive, and you feel that that the adherence to this the illegality is providing a disservice to women? What do you do? And once that questioning be begin begins to take place, and the kind of energy, shall we say, which goes goes into that actual que questioning, you have a conflict, you have a struggle. And one can't make someone else, let us say, a monk, adhere to the rules. I mean, adhere to the change and, 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 uh, and change his mind with regard to, say, an extreme interpretation of the rules. But one can express very directly and clearly what one, what one is feeling. One can express and, com and communicate that life has changed, that society has changed, and particularly in this case that women have changed. 
and that the old superior, inferior model is no longer acceptable for a woman. And, and that somehow, where there, is, uh, where there is this blind adherence, that somehow or other, I feel is part of the growth and the growing pain of the transmission of the, the Dharma and the message of peace from the East to the West. It's our willingness in our various roles and capacity to look at these things and to really work with them. In that respect, this bringing of the coming, as many of you know, and, and some of whom you know the people personally, to my understanding is that it's a two-way street, this process of, um, process and of actual liberation. And the, and the transmission from the East to the West, that is the bringing of teachers, this Asian teachers who are cultivated and developed their practices and their understanding and a certain degree of inner uh, liberation or a greater degree in the uh, East come to the West and, and I feel and I'm sure that uh, many and some of you do too have a contribution to make a contribution about the value of living a truly ethical way of life to truly live ethically is so difficult to do in this society. The value of meditation practice, the value of being truly content with little, the, the value one sees of a certain simplicity and expression of goodness and, and kindness and warmth and affection. And sometimes one meets some of the ancient teachers who, who come here and one really feels there's something inherently good about that, about that person. And, and in many ways, I feel, all of us, in that respect, have a great deal to learn about human goodness and, and gentle acts of kindness and uh, expressions of um, affection and uh, easygoingness. Those kind of qualities, I, uh, I feel, without, can help a lot to take out of our life, some of the intensity of our life, some of the intensity which we approach everything, including meditation practice. In that respect, I feel we have a lot to learn from some of these Asian, Asian teachers who express a, a warmth, a lack, a, 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 a lack of intensity and a certain charm. But we shouldn't underestimate what we have also to contribute. That's what I mean by two-way street. Because some of those Asian teachers, and if I may say, in those years in the East, had the privilege of listening to many, like and myself and, and others who wouldn't think of traveling twice, about a thousand miles, just to get, or two thousand miles, just to go and hear a single talk. Because someone said, this person is worth listening to. And some of us would go from one, the Himalayas right down to Sri Lanka just to hear a talk, things like that. But, and, in, and so there is that respect from, let us say, cultivated awareness and respect of that. But the two-way street is being aware of what we too, as 
people have to contribute. That is to contribute to the people that we respect. And, I, and it is out of our respect, nothing else, out of our respect, we are aware of what we in the West have to contribute and how that may contribute to the welfare of some of the teachers that come. Because it's a brave person who implies or says, I am totally liberated. If I may say, I have not yet met such a person. Never, anywhere. In this, what is the contribution in this, in terms of what we have to contribute to the Western situation, to the, from the West to the East? There's some, I feel, some very definite areas. One area is, it's only small, it's a mere spark, but it's happening. And that is, there is this, in religious life, in the political life, and in the social life, there is this ghastly gap between human beings and expressing itself in all the hierarchical structures and models. The relationship of, I know, whoever or whatever that I is, you don't know. Therefore, in, through inference, I am better, therefore I have special privileges, therefore you do as I say. Now that is standard, a standard model. Uh, it, it is this unquestioning obedience. It is this unwillingness to look, and I may, if I may, may say, in America, this is very strong. This is very, very strong. It is, I call this the cowboy mentality. It's having watched in one's childhood too many cowboy films. <laughs> and in that one creates the goodies and the heroes and occasionally the heroine. And one creates these and this kind of transference all too quickly takes place. But there's a growing number of people say it doesn't have we don't have to have that kind of relationship we can have a relationship of sharing we can have a relationship of giving to each of giving to each other we can have a relationship of respect for oneself as a person respect for oneself as a, a woman respect for oneself as a as a man respect for oneself in terms of seeing the kind of progress that, that is being made here and some of that can be transferred some, some of that can be communicated. That when one hears, in other words, some off-the-wall statement by a person of a different culture, instead of just sitting there and just, say, and just blocking out what one is feeling, as so often happens in the East, nobody really questions. Instead of blocking it out, someone just says, hey, wait a minute, I'm not so sure about that. And there have been, by golly, plenty of examples in this hall over the years. And, and we, we, we come and sometimes we, we, we hear these peculiar statements which are, which, are, which are made, only born out of the social conditioning of people. And one knows there's something fishy, fishy about it. 
<laughs> and, and, and one so quickly and easily just says nothing. So one is not aware, paying respect to oneself or to one's background, by keeping silent. And that still has to happen. To have the courage to, to say, well, I, I wish to, to question that. And sometimes that, that, that isn't easy. Another area, that, therefore that's what one might call this examination of hierarchy and, and, and roles. And an another area too, which we have a, a contribution to make towards each other towards this, is there is a much greater ability and capacity, I feel, in the West, to be able to say and express what we're feeling at the one-to-one -one level. You know, one is feeling angry, one says, I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling agitated, I'm feeling confused, I've, I've got a fantasy running or whatever. And part of this progressive movement in the West is that we are beginning to say what we're feeling. And, and say it in such a way that we sense that other people will hear us. And what one finds again and again, that in that actual openness and the willingness to do that, one gains, gains a tremendous amount of affection and respect and interest and care. The fact of our willingness and learning to be open. Now in the East, particularly for the ordained Sangha, that doesn't happen. You can't get a monk to say, I'm having a sexual fantasy about... <laughs> <laughs> about one of the women in the hall or, 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 or whatever, or I've got a real, I've got a real food craving on, or, <laughs> or whatever. One, it is so difficult for the monk to admit they're human. That's part of the problem. It's so hard to, to acknowledge this and express Yes, I'm like you. Yes, I've got feelings which I need to look at more carefully. Yes, I'm, I, I get confused. Yes, I'm like this. Yes, I'm like that. And I feel that we as Westerners, instead of just seeing this outwardly calm austerior, shant, shant, shant. And, and, and... <laughs> And behind that, there can be a volcano at work. <laughs> Not always. But, no, that's too much an exaggeration. But, ra but rather, our uh, willingness to be uh, more open means it must be two ways. And I feel it would be so healthy and helpful to make it a two-way street. Now, that isn't going to happen unless people like yourselves, ourselves, as Westerners, feel we can do it. And you can feel that, that the person isn't feeling okay, and you say, how are you feeling? And the person says, as the cultural says, I'm okay. And you know it's not like that. No, really, how are you feeling? Come on, don't be shy. And that, that, that opening inwardly can be so helpful. It can be for, e for everybody concerned, the speaker as well as the listener. And that again is one further expression of what we, I feel, have to contribute in ways that we are liberating ourselves. It's an, a really major and equally important aspect 
of coming to greater liberation. Just as meditation and the depth of it and, and the forms of it uh, is also a contribution. And another way too in which we really have ways to con- contribute is in, is in terms, as was mentioned previously, is in terms of the, the whole women's movement and the enormous significance of that. Just as two and a half thousand years ago, bringing women from one stereotyped role into a, a, uh, an open way of life was radical and revolutionary. Now that in its own way is, is happening here. And to communicate that, to, to really convey that across to the men and women who come from Asia to the West, that that's actually happening. And and one of the, the joys of speaking uh, the Dharma of life with people here, that many of the women have been very directly or are involved in, in these liberation movements. And that, and that and they express within their own life that independence. And it's not like things are in the East. And I feel that we can contribute, find ways to contribute that message to those that come. This then becomes true in a real sense of the word, East meets West. Not East comes to the West and, and, and that's it, but East meets West. West meets East. Some of us went there and now I'm here. And similarly, as it were, heart's wish is, is that those that come from the East are very welcome and tremendous thing that they come, come here not only to give something but also to find something out. And in finding something out, just as some of us have found something out there, in finding something else, go back and say, hey, we don't have to live with this model. We don't have to live with this polarity. Monks are are spiritually more advantaged than anybody else. We don't have to live in which we can't express what we're feeling. Because there's a liberation movement on in the world which says there's an alternative way of doing things, which is more sharing and greater sense of openness and equality. And that would be an enormous contribution to make to the Buddhist world. And we can make something, we can make, help to make that happen without ramming it down out their throats. <laughs> just as we don't want anything rammed down ours either. Incidentally, the talk is going on a little bit long, and if you prefer to do some walking or whatever, come and go as you like, you know, I don't mind, it doesn't matter to me. (laughs) But there's another aspect too of what is actually taking place here. What, what, what there is, to some degree or other, one of the main areas, I think, of work and liberation is towards freeing ourselves from this kind of fossilization which takes place of um, views and opinions, which, once having become solidified, makes the differences. And then people feel obliged to stay with one thing absolutely and very tightly, and, as is often encouraged by the powers to be, not to do anything else whatsoever, 
and to keep tightly knit. And that, of course, is what has happened traditionally. That is what one notices in one society. And, and, and it seems to me that one of the, again, one of the liberating elements is one doesn't have to do it like that. It may seem appropriate to work with a particular practice and approach and way in a particular time, but one finds the way, the freedom inside of oneself to see what feels useful and right at a particular time and to follow it through. And that may express itself in quite different ways. Some people, I mean, take a simple example, if we uh, talk about Buddhism, some people who are, ter uh, are terribly, uh, tend to be very lazy, uh, you know, have that kind of tendency, or lack energy, or really need to develop a firmness of mind in a particular way, might regard Zen, for example, as being really appropriate at a particular time, because that helps to lick the mind into shape, as some of you know, in a very definite way. <laughs> and another person, other people may, may sense and, and uh, feel that at a particular time it may be um, useful to go and live alone and spend some time in aloneness and to, to really follow that through. And for another person it may be to, go to live with some kind of community situation and then actually follow that through too. And some, which, as I was mentioning to the staff, some of the staff ye yesterday evening, find that service becomes very, very important. And if I may say, I regard service as the, the most noble of human activities. And there's sometimes a, a vague kind of appreciation of that when we consider some of the people, um, past and uh, present who have gained, let us say, a, a universal respect, because they had a tremendous consciousness of service. And so one, one may find different ways and, 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 and outlets, and, and to have the freedom inside of oneself, despite all the confusion and difficulty, the freedom inside of oneself to explore where impossible these areas. To, to explore, when one is in the family situation, the tremendous possibility of using that situation, of transforming that situation into, into one of the fullness of relationship to life and humanity, through the medium of one's family, through being a parent, through being a lover. And that, that questions, the, the, again, the old stereotyped models of a certain prescribed way of life versus another way of life. No life which is ethically um, grounded is a barrier. No life which is ethically grounded uh, is better than another. It's all coming actually from our attitude and our relationship to that life. And I think this is so important, where we, where we have to leave behind, in a very real way, this old Eastern model. Being a monk, first best, second best, being a nun, in terms of certain precepts, and then the rest of us, no hope.
And that, that, kind, that kind of change, I'm not saying no hope, I'm exaggerating to get the point across, please. <laughs> that kind, that some kind of change, as I mentioned before, I feel is a necessary aspect of the movement. That's what, again, this bringing of East to West is all about. And so that in our own society, there is, what someone said to me the other day, there's a kind of new emergence taking place. An emergence of seeing the options which are available, of voluntary simplicity, of the care for the earth. And surely the Buddha, if anything, is to be regarded as one of, as one of the great founders of uh, the ecology movement. His extraordinary capacity and awareness which he emphasized towards the earth, towards the nature, towards creatures. And that, that is a genuine ecological awareness. And also when one feels that connection with the ecology movement, for example, the disarmament movement, and, and other expressions of the, the women's movement, one is expressing a liberation movement. And the heart and the spirit is what counts. Not the form, not the tradition, not the Vinaya, not the, not the, the old models. And somehow I feel and sense that this is the message which has to come through to us. So here, just finally, here it again, it is Keeping the balance, it is those of us particularly who really sense that we have benefited considerably from the various uh, teachings so that, we, that, that we don't lose sight of that appreciation and that, that gratitude to, towards that. And also paying respect to people is by our discussion and by our communicating that expresses a confidence in ourselves that such, such people, where one feels that there is something needs to be looked at, that our questioning expresses a confidence in such people that the, the person is willing to look and to observe and to, to bring change, to bring greater communication, to bring about a reduction of this concentration of power in all its forms in the hand of the few to a new kind of expression where the power is genuine, genuinely shared, where, where any, any expression of sexism in any form is, to, is just not acceptable. And therefore one is paying respect because one emphasizes the need for change, both to the people that one feels that, who perhaps need to give, as well as those people that one speaks for that one is. Now all, all, that is all, all part of the whole movement, the movement towards change. And every one of us in, in, in many ways in that area has a long way to go. We have a long way to go because we have a lot more to receive than we know and we have a long way to go because we have a lot more to give than we know.
May all beings live in peace and harmony. May all beings live with mutual respect. May all beings live with an abiding love and gratitude for each other. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.